Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. His economic advisors are weighing in against it, advising against it. Donald Trump still says he wants to shut down the border. The American economy be damned. What do you say, everybody? Hope you're looking good, feeling good today. It is Wednesday, April 3rd, and this is the Bill Press Show. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C., joining you all across this great country of ours all around the globe. To bring you up to date on the news of the day, let's take a look at what's happening on every front here in Washington, D.C., both at the Capitol and down at the White House, where the uh, president was kind of forced to uh, welcome the NATO secretary to the White House yesterday. Uh, He had been invited to address a joint session of Congress today and will do so. Uh, And so the White House said, "Uh uh-oh. He's coming to town. We better uh, um, at least show that uh, we're at willing to talk to him. Uh, so they had a big meeting down there where, he, of course, Donald Trump uh, took all credit, full credit for the fact that some of the NATO nations have stepped up uh, their um, contributions to NATO as they agreed to do way back under President Obama. Uh, we'll take, so we'll bring you up to date on the Congress, on the White House, around the country, around the globe, and a new mayor of Chicago, very, very exciting, um, who has been a guest here in studio at the Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. Good to have you with us. Lots to talk about. Lots, of course, that you will want to comment on, as always. Send us your comments on Twitter right now at BP Show, on Twitter at BP Show, all throughout the show or right now. I'll look forward to hearing from you, but first, this Go is the Full Court, court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. Well, yes. last night is the moment that a lot of Washington Nationals fans were oh waiting for. Bryce Harper came back to town after he left the Nationals to go play for the Philadelphia Phillies. 
It was not a great start for Bryce. He got struck out twice by Max Scherzer. Probably a little nervous being back in front of the. He was very nervous. Yeah. Lots of booze. Oh, my God. Lots of booze in the park last night. But those booze started shutting up a little bit later on in the game. 2-2. Two, two. Swing and a drive. Deep right center field. And that ball is gone into the second deck. And Bryce Harper, in his return to Washington, has crushed it. He destroyed a ball. 458-foot home run into the second deck of Nationals Park yesterday. Uh, that was... Uh, I just want to point out... You shut hear, a lot of people up. Yeah, there were monumental boos. I mean, they... Oh, boos, my God. Yeah, all the way. They, they booed him all the way through from the time he walked out of the dugout. But you hear the cheers for that home run. There were a lot of Phillies fans. There were a lot the of Phillies fans there. There were a lot of Phillies fans. We've gotten there. used to it. Washington now, where the Phillies play here... Amtrak does a hell of a business, man. I know. And Washington is a sea of red. It, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Phillies went on to win that game 8-2. 8-2, to two, by hello. Yeah, it wasn't really close. You know, there, there are two students, freshmen, at Secaucus High School who were in a little bit of trouble because mm-hmm. they figured mm-hmm. out a way to crash the school's Wi-Fi network on multiple occasions. Now, why would they do that? Because they wanted to get out of taking exams. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> they now, now, here's this is what I, I really hate. Because I think, good for these guys, right? But they were actually charged with computer criminal activity and conspiracy to commit commuter, computer c- criminal activity after school officials notified the police that they were hacking and shutting down and jamming the oh, Wi-Fi. No. So they called the cops really? on these two freshman students, and they've been charged with these uh, <laughs> with, with these crimes. Uh, they came out and said, yes, it's true. Our Wi-Fi connection was compromised. They believe it was by these two students. They didn't give any more details on the incident. But, you know, if the teachers don't have access to the Wi-Fi, they can't, you know, get these tests out to kids. And they figured that would be enough to keep them out of taking their exams. <laughs> a whole new world, baby. Totally. Oh. Completely. This is the Bill Press Show. Yep, his top economic advisors tell him not to do it. Donald Trump says, I don't care. I don't give a damn. I'm going to close the border anyway. Hey, hello, everybody. Can you believe it? It's a Wednesday. Man, this week is flying by. Here we are, middle of the week, Wednesday, April 3rd, the Bill Press Show. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C. That's where we are. We start out, at least in Washington, D.C. We don't end up, we don't stay here. We end up alongside of you, wherever you are. In this great land of ours, wherever you are around the planet, we join you online, we join you on the radio, we join you on television with all the news of the day. Wherever it's happening, we're on top of it, whether it's here in Washington, this end of Pennsylvania Avenue, the United States Capitol, just down the street from where we're broadcasting, or down at the other end of Pennsylvania at the White House, around the country, around the globe, particularly emphasis on Chicago today. We are on top of it. We'll tell you what's going on, and you tell us what it all means to you. Joining you online, of course, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, which is where you sign up for our podcast. Please check out the podcast and sign up for the podcast and rate the podcast. Tell us what you, what you think of it, parts of the show that you can't catch. 
uh, because you're on your way to work or you get to work, you got to get out of the car or whatever. Uh, so online, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. On the radio statewide in Indiana and on the great WCPT out in Chicago and uh, on television, coast to coast on Free Speech TV, let's go. Let's start in Chicago, the great city of Chicago, which is celebrating today with a new mayor, proud to say, a new mayor who uh, early in her campaign graced us with her visit here to our studio in Washington, D.C. She is Laurie Lightfoot. 56 years old, the former head appointed by Rahm Emanuel as the head of the Chicago Police Board. She's an attorney, a prosecutor herself. Uh, She is Chicago's first African-American female mayor and Chicago's first openly LGBTQ member. Uh, As she says, she is an open and a proud black lesbian. Laurie Lightfoot last night thanking the crowd at her big victory party. Thank you, Chicago. <laughs> From the bottom of my heart. She was up against uh, Tony Preckwinkle, of course, uh, another strong, uh, good candidate, African-American woman who had been head of the Chicago, um, the Cook County uh, board, however. Uh, but it became uh, sort of the um, community versus the establishment or, if you will, the activist versus the machine, because Tony Preckwinkle, of course, being head of the county board, uh, and um, and that ended up working against her. The race was called very early on when, I don't know what the final count was. I forgot to check, double-check this morning, but early on, uh, Laurie Lightwood was some 50 points ahead of Preckwinkle in the, in the, in the count. Sure, it ended up a lot closer. Uh, Laurie Lightfoot, again, uh, first thing she did, uh, thanking... Uh, her family, her wife, and their daughter. I sure wouldn't have made it without my wife, Amy, and our daughter, Vivian. She was appointed by Rahm Emanuel to deal with the issue, to the police board, to deal with the issue of gun violence. And uh, last night, she reaffirmed that is still her number one priority. Our duty as a city as leaders, as neighbors, as people, is to stand with these mothers and children and put an end to this gun violence once and for all. Good for her, good for Chicago. I thought her message uh, very really resonated around the country. She said last night, quote, again, out there tonight, a lot of little boys and a lot of little girls and boys are watching. They're watching us. And they're seeing the beginning of something, well, a little bit different. (laughs) I'll say for sure. Uh, She went on to say, quote, they're seeing a city reborn, a city where it doesn't matter what color you are, where it doesn't matter who you love, just as long as you love with all your heart. Good for her. Good for Chicago. Congratulations to all uh, great new day for Chicago, and um, so she's going to be a great mayor of Chicago. Uh, let's go back here to Washington, D.C. The Washington Post, before we get into uh, all the crazy things that uh, Donald Trump said yesterday about the border, about health care, about wind farms, uh, what else did he talk? He talked about everything, about 
about Hillary, of course, about the Mueller investigation, about Germany, um, all kinds of crazy stuff. But uh, just let's set the scene, right, for what we can expect every day from the White House. Uh, the Washington Post yesterday, the fact checker, uh, Glenn Kessler in the Washington Post, did his latest update report on the Trump, um, shall we call them misstatements? Or shall we call them exaggerations? Or should we just call them lies? Kind of, that's what they are. Okay, eight, uh, this is a couple of days ago. Uh, as of a couple of days ago, 802 days into the Trump administration. 802 days uh, by the Washington Post count, and I'm sure they missed a few. 9,451 lies. Good God. 9,451. And 51 lies. You know, when people say, well, oh, every president lies. Like, okay, how about Barack Obama? And they always point to, there was one thing that he said, he, and he corrected himself, but at one time he said, under Obamacare, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor and there'll be no problem. It was not entirely untrue, but it was not entirely true either. That's the one thing anybody can ever point to that Barack Obama said where he was caught not saying the full, absolute, total truth. Once. And even then, it was not a lie. He had been misinformed. He corrected it. And he said, actually, this is the way Obamacare works. Uh, uh, No. Compare that to 9,451 lies. Now, here's the problem, or what reality also is, it's getting worse. According to the Washington Post, in his first year... He told an average of 5.9 lies a day. Uh, Since then... Which, by the way, is not good. No, that's not good. (laughs) But that's the best that we've got from him. Uh, No, right. In the last 200 days, he's clocking in at 22 lies a day. Of course, now, wait a minute. You have to understand. These are only the, the public statements, right? We don't know how many lies he tells... Yeah, behind the behind the scenes. Oh, he would never do that when he's not on the mic. This yeah. is when he's on the mic. And he's on the mic maybe hour a day if he has a rally, an hour and a half a day. I mean, you know what I mean? He's at the White House. You don't hear from them that much. No, 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 not a ton. Reporters come in and there's a meeting in the Oval Office and they throw him a couple of questions. But it's probably five minutes. Anyhow, twenty average last two hundred days, twenty two lies a day. Last Friday night in Grand Rapids, <laughs> Michigan, at the rally oh, in Grand Rapids. Geez. Yeah. Uh, Washington Post added up 64 lies. 64 lies. 64 in that hour and a half alone. <laughs> wow. And, of course, the crowd just sits there and loves it, right? They don't know. They don't, they don't know. know. They don't know Idiots. Better. <laughs> Idiots. So, uh, so anyhow, wow. I think that kind of puts everything in context, okay, for everything else that happened in Trump land, in Trump land yesterday. Um uh, and, and, and let's start with uh, with healthcare. This is I know it's hard to follow because the script changes every day. So last week, suddenly, the Trump administration, who had been as we've been talking about, uh, they'd been going along under this wearing this fig leaf that they were going to uh, just sort of uh, clean up Obamacare, but save the better parts. They were going to repeal it, yes, but they were going to save the better parts, like protecting people with pre-existing conditions. Well, they ripped off the fig leaf, and they joined a lawsuit 
that's working its way up through the courts, now in a Texas uh, federal court, that would invalidate the entire Obamacare Act uh, brought by some a, a collection of Republican attorneys general from different, sta- from different states, red states, of course. Uh, and the Trump administration joined that lawsuit, which says it is now on the record officially to kill Obamacare, every single provision of it, and replace it with nothing. That's the official position. And then Donald Trump said, surprise the hell out of members of the Senate when the day he went up to the Senate to lunch with the Republican caucus, he said, we're going to come up, we're going to be the party of health care, we're going to write a better plan, and you Republican senators are, are going to do it right now. They were stunned. They didn't have any idea, number one, that he was going to bail out and take the position of killing Obamacare entirely, or number two, that he was going to promise that they would deliver uh, a new plan. Um, and they weren't ready to do so, and they didn't want to do so, having just gotten their ass kicked in 2018 by not having a replacement for Obamacare and losing 40 seats in the House. Uh, they didn't want that boomerang to hit them again in the House and in the Senate races in 2020. Uh, so Mitch McConnell called up Donald Trump and said, Mitch McConnell, first of all, his response before that was um, simply, well, I look forward to seeing what the president is going to come up with, meaning it's your, it's, it balls in your court, babe. We don't have anything we can offer. Uh, yesterday, Mitch McConnell was even more honest. He said what he told the president when he called him. I made it clear to him we were not going to be doing that in the Senate. <laughs> he did say, as he later uh, tweeted, he accepted that. Yeah. Mitch McConnell finally showed some balls, right? Yeah. Finally just didn't cave in. Called him up and said, you idiot. (laughs) What are you doing to us? No, we're not going to do that. And we've seen this before. When somebody does stand up to Donald Trump, he'll he'll fold. He'll cave. He's done that before. You know, all the big bluster, all the rhetoric, everybody says, oh, my God, oh, my God. Now, he doesn't always. He did shut down the government when, when Mitch McConnell advised him not to, even though it was Mark Meadows from the Freedom Caucus who said he should. But at any rate, doesn't always back down, but he can back down. Uh, And meanwhile, so Donald Trump still, let's get back to the lies. He responds yesterday by telling reporters again, talking about how this plan we've got is such a great plan. We don't have the House. So even though the health care is good, really good, it's much better than when the plan comes out, which we'll be showing you at the appropriate time. It's much better than Obamacare. They don't have a plan. What is he talking about? They've had 10 years since President Obama signed the Affordable Care Act into law. They have still not come up with a plan. They voted over 50 times in the House of Representatives to repeal Obamacare. They never came up with a plan to replace it with anything the Senate has not had a plan. The House hasn't had a plan. The House of Republicans have delivered nothing in 10 years. They have no plan now. And the president the other day cited uh, three or four Republican senators who he said that they're all working on this new plan. Now, first of all, they they told reporters, no, we're not. No, we're not. What's he talking about? And now Donald Trump is out there telling reporters, telling all of us, they've got a great plan, a better plan, which they'll reveal to us when they're ready to. Right. It's like that kid in middle school or high school that's like, yeah, I have a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Uh, She lives in Canada. You'll never be able to meet her. Uh, But she's totally real and totally exists. And so it's just important to know where things stand. 
no matter what Donald Trump says, no matter what Mick Mulvaney said over the uh, on the Sunday shows, no matter what any of the Republicans say about protecting people with pre-existing conditions or keeping the better parts of Obamacare, their official position right now, even though they say they're going to wait until after 2020 now, that's the latest, we're going to, after 2020, says Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, we'll come up with a plan. Even though they say that, their position today, they are in court asking a judge, and if he says yes, they'll go to the Supreme Court, asking the Supreme Court to invalidate the entire Affordable Care Act, top to bottom, every single provision, and replace it with nothing. So matter, no matter what they say, please remember that. Their official position that they're going into 2020 with, that they're going to have to live with, is no health protection for millions and millions and millions of Americans who have it now under the Affordable Care Act. So uh, the one place we saw Donald Trump and his lies again yesterday, uh, the second is on the border crossing. He is now, it's not just Republicans in Congress who are saying, wait a minute, what the hell are you doing? I just take a moment out, just a little aside. You know what must be really frustrating for these Republicans and if, for a lot of the White House staff is, this should be a moment when Donald Trump is gloating and enjoying his big victory after the, the Mueller report came out. And it was bland enough, the Mueller Of course, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we haven't seen the Mueller report. All we've seen is Bill Barr's four-page summary. But after that came out, it was bland enough and soft enough that Donald Trump could really go out and claim this as a huge victory and do a victory lap around the country and be talking about nothing about how he was totally vindicated, totally exploited. And instead, he stepped on his own story. And all we've been talking about since the bar summary came out is about health care and about the border again, which Donald Trump went back to, and now insisting on closing the border, reported yesterday that he is being hammered against this idea not by Democrats, yes, Democrats, but not just by Democrats, by Republicans in Congress, and not just Republicans in Congress, by the top members of his White House staff, his two top economic advisors, Larry Kudlow and Kevin Hassett, both are saying, Mr. President, you can't do this because it's going to wreck the American uh, economy. The And they've had all kinds of other people weigh in, like the National Association of Manufacturers came out yesterday and said, without these parts that come in every day uh, through the border with Mexico, coming south to north, American businesses will lose $726 million every day the border is closed. The auto industry yesterday came out with a statement saying that without their auto parts, the supplies from Mexico, the entire U.S. auto industry would be forced to shut down within a week. And Donald Trump says he's going to shut down the border. And agricultural leaders, of course, warn that U.S. farmers that now export corn and pork and all kinds of other products to Mexico U.S. farmers are really going to be wiped out, and American consumers, those of us who depend on the tomatoes, the fruits, the vegetables, the avocados from Mexico, we're either going to be paying higher prices in the short term or simply be without them. 
uh, in the long term. But down at the White House, Donald Trump still says, nope, we got a crisis, got to shut down the border. And uh, his loyal spokesperson, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, comes out and says, of course, blaming it on Democrats and saying we just have no choice. We have to do this. Uh, look, Democrats are leaving us absolutely no choice at this point. We've already oh, yeah. had to mm-hmm. move roughly mm-hmm. 750 personnel from ports of entry uh, at this point, And it looks like we're going to have to move more, which will force those lines to go longer to cross the border. And eventually it may be that it's the best decision that we close the border. Yeah, no choice. Blame it on Democrats. <laughs> Democrat came up with this idea. And again, there's a big difference between dealing with illegal immigration people who may be or people who are coming seeking asylum outside of the ports of entry and dealing here. We're talking about not the flow of immigrants, not the flow of refugees. We're talking about the flow of goods and traffic, commercial goods coming through ports of entry in trucks and in trains. billion worth of commerce back and forth every single day that Donald Trump says he wants to uh, just shut down like he shut down the government. Senator uh, John N. Kennedy from Louisiana says uh, not such a good idea. I broke my nose one time playing ball. (laughs) Uh, I didn't chop it off. (laughs) I went to the doctor and had him reset it and tape it up. You know, Kennedy's such a folksy guy. He yeah. always gets down to uh, yeah. in terms people can understand. You know, Kennedy's kind of annoying in how he much is. water he yeah. carries for Trump <laughs> and all that. But I really wish the Democrats had a Kennedy type. Right. You know, yeah. he could just make it plain. Just make it real plain. <laughs> I mean, that, that sums it up. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> it really does. Well, uh, Trump was uh, – the, the, the Donald Trump, not the, the, not the only uh, – uh, areas where he's that he talked uh, subjects he talked uh, spoke out about on yesterday. Uh, he's still on the Mueller report, yeah. And uh, now, of course, he and Lindsey Graham are into um, okay. Mueller's shut down his investigation. Now we need a, an investigation into the investigation. Uh, and the people who started this investigation, they were traitors. People did things that were very, very bad for our country and very, very illegal. And you could even say treasonous. Treasonous. Uh Aha. This started by the FBI, calling the FBI treasonous, traitors. Uh, And he says, you know, how did this thing start? Let's get back to, well, let's see. You and I might say, let's look into the origins of the Mueller report. Uh, Donald Trump says it a little differently. Listen up. No collusion, no obstruction. I hope they now go and take a look at the oranges, the oranges of the uh, uh, investigation, the beginnings of that investigation. You look at the origin of the investigation, where it started, how it started, who started it. He tried three times. (laughs) And he couldn't say origin. Let's look at the oranges. No, the oranges are are what are not going to be coming up across the border when he shuts that's down right. the border. Yeah, that's right. right. That's yeah. right. That's where. That's Let's where look he, at the oranges. If you want to find the oranges, you got to go to Mexico. So they won't be coming <laughs> into our grocery store. What? Did, first of all, we know what the oranges of the investigation are. The orange, big orange, was George Papadopoulos, big mouth George <laughs> Papadopoulos, in London telling people 
man, I met this Russian guy who's got all kinds of dirt on Hillary. This is so cool. And he's, he actually told the Australian ambassador that, who happened to tell the FBI, and we know that's how the whole investigation got started way back when Donald Trump was still a candidate, denying that they had any contact with the Russians at all. George Papadopoulos, who then went to this little uh, foreign policy group he was a member of, led by George, uh, Jeff Sessions, and said, eh, I got such great contacts. Let me arrange a meeting with Vladimir Putin and Donald and Kennedy, Donald Trump. They were colluding all the way, all the way through it. That's how the thing got started, because accepting... Uh, that kind of assistance from a foreign government, let alone a foreign adversary, uh, let alone an enemy of the United States, um, is simply against the law. That's what the FBI was looking into. We know how it got started. Um, Donald Trump also, he really has a problem with um, wind. He cannot accept the fact that wind energy is real, it's providing, I don't know, what, 5% maybe now of American um, energy uh, resources. And the promise is even more, both onshore and offshore. But for Donald Trump, with wind, there's nothing but problems. Of course, we blame it on Hillary again. Hillary wanted to put up wind. 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 If you, wind. If you have a windmill anywhere near your house, congratulations. Your house just went down 75% in value. And they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, okay? You know, the thing makes it so... And, of course, it's like a graveyard for birds. Dr. Trump. <laughs> Dr. Trump. Dr. Trump is in the building. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, see. Oh, you've got can. Oh, uh, what? Have you been near a windmill? Have you been listening to noise? Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, it's so good. What and they did? say the noise causes <laughs> cancer. You tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Oh, God. Noise causes cancer. That's it. Also, the thing about those windmills is sometimes the wind doesn't blow. Oh, yeah, that's another one of his right. favorite things. And that's when the lights go out, right? That's right. So if we have windmills and the, and, and the wind doesn't blow, New York City is in the dark. That's right. right. The entire that's country is in the dark. There's a blackout. That's right? how it works. Michael Brown, head of the Sierra Club here, was in studio with us on Monday. He did point out there are things, such things as that are called batteries, where they store electricity um, from solar farms. Also, what he doesn't mention is you know what? The sun goes down at night too. Solar power doesn't That's work. That's the problem night. with solar power. Yeah. yeah. Solar power doesn't work at night. Uh how do we get this idiot as our president? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Hey. Uh, <laughs> we've been trying to keep <laughs> we've been uh, trying to keep up with the um flow, not of wind here, but uh, the flow of money into uh, the Democratic presidential candidates. The first quarter is over. The first one we heard from was Pete Buttigieg raised $7 million. Very, very impressive figure. Uh, The next one out was Kamala Harris, who reported that she raised uh, $12 million in the first quarter. Pete Buttigieg entirely online contributions uh, with uh, Kamala Harris, half online, half from big donors. Uh, Bernie Sanders blew them away yesterday, and no surprise. We haven't heard from most of them. I'm surprised that we haven't heard from Beto. We haven't heard from Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker. Uh, we did hear from Andrew Yang, by the way, 
$1.7 million for Andrew Yang in the first quarter, which, uh, by the way, that's all online, too. That's pretty impressive for somebody most people have never heard of. Uh, but Bernie, as I say, blew them away yesterday. His report, raising $18 million in the first quarter, no big checks here, from 900,000 small donor contributions. That is amazing. 900,000. Uh, here are some other numbers to note about that, uh, according to the uh, Sanders campaign. By the way, the average contribution, $20 this time. Um, they, those contributions came from every state, every territory, and every congressional district in the country helping Bernie Sanders. A majority of his donors are 39 years old or younger Almost 100,000 registered independents and 20,000 registered Republicans contributed. 99.5% of his donations are $100 or less. 88% of the money raised comes from people who have given 200 or less. 99.99% of Bernie's donors can give again and again and again. And again, 99.6% of the money came from online donors. And how many fundraising events were held? Not one. You got to say, pretty impressive, $18.2 million. It's crazy money, man. It is. It really is. And we'll see how the others do. I've never from Elizabeth Warren either, by the way. So No, and she's had some problems with some fundraising, sadly. Right, uh, right. So yeah. hopefully he's trying to build the base. But yeah, again, yeah, we yeah. keep pointing out Bernie had the advantage of having that base coming into it. Uh, as we uh, hear other news, we will um, bring it up to you. So uh, great guest coming up. Steve Shepard, uh, one of our good friends from Politico, editor and reporter Politico, joins us next here on the Bill Press Show. Give us a quick break. We'll be right back here on this Wednesday, April 3rd. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, here you go, Wednesday, April 3rd. Hello, 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 and welcome to the program. And uh, give us a join all of us in giving a thank you to the American Federation of Government Employees for their support of the program, their sponsorship today, members of the AFGE under President J. David Cox, the men and women who keep our federal agencies running day in and day out, serving all of us. Grateful for their support and grateful for their good work and grateful to welcome to the studio our good friend from Politico, uh, Politico uh, editor at Politico, and uh, overall, I just think of you as the pollster or ahead <laughs> of the polls, polls at Politico, Steve Shepard. Steve's good to see you. Good to be back. Let's uh, jump in first with uh, Peter bringing us up to date on some comments from what we've been talking about. Yes, indeed. Lots of comments where we are tweeting at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, let's talk about the, you, you mentioned the uh, fact-checking, the lies oh, that Donald yes. Trump tells yeah. every day. According uh, to the Washington Post fact-checker. That's right. Perry on Twitter says, don't forget that they count his tweets as well. So these aren't just his public statements. His tweets count as lies as well because he he does tend to lie. I think that's true, but I would count them among his public statements. Yeah, no, I, I mean, agree. Yeah, I think, think that's right. My point I was clarify. making was what stuff he says privately to his staff or yeah. his wife. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, Tom says Trump has no health care plan, no workable border plan, no foreign policy, no North Korea plan, and he is more dishonest every single day. Uh, we also played this clip of Donald Trump trying to talk about the origins of the Mueller investigations. No, no, no. The oranges. The oranges. Well, so Phil <laughs> says, I was kind of hoping that you had Trump saying, orange, you glad I didn't say orange again. <laughs> Uh, no, he did not go that far. Uh, if you have a comment on any topic at any time, you can always find us on Twitter at BP Show. And let me just uh, point out that we have a poll up right uh -oh. now that you uh -oh. can vote in. This has to do with the closing of the U.S.-Mexico border, which Donald Trump and his administration has threatened to do. Do you think he will close the U.S.-Mexico border? Yes, no, or undecided? Uh, just put it up just a couple moments ago, so not a ton of votes in quite yet, so you can change that. But right now, 27% of you say yes, he will. 68% of you say no, he will not. Only 5% of you are undecided. So go get those votes in right now. The poll is live at BP Show on Twitter. All right, Peter, thank you. So, Steve, one... Um Factor in assessing the strength of the various uh, candidates, uh, uh, the 15 or so of Democrats who have jumped into the 2020 race, is looking at their fundraising. And we just ended, uh, the first quarter just ended, and we've seen, I'm surprised everybody's not out there yet, but so far, uh, Pete Buttigieg, 7 million, Kamala Harris at 12, Andrew Yang, 1.7, <laughs> which is for him, I think, impressive. Bernie Sanders blew them away yesterday with 8.2. Yeah. 18.2, yeah. Um, 18.2. What's that tell you about them? Well, I, look, I, I think it speaks to the fact that uh, Bernie Sanders still, that the, the strength of his 2016 campaign was organization and the uh, uh, fervent supporters he had. He obviously did not have as many supporters as Hillary Clinton. That's why he didn't win the nomination. But, but he had close to the same number, and his supporters were very, very enthusiastic, and enthusiastic to the point that they were willing and, and able to donate uh, to Bernie Sanders small sums of money very frequently. <laughs> and uh, he obviously has been kind of dark with that group of people for the last three years, sending out occasional mm -hmm. Uh, fundraising letters during 2017 and 2018, though not frequent. In fact, some people would say not not frequent enough to maintain that army. I, th I think he kind of disproved that uh, by launching w with a with a strong number and and the strongest number we've seen so far. And, and really, the only candidate who has a chance to to match or or, or come close, I think, to that number is Beto O'Rourke. Uh, because he did much the same thing during his campaign in Texas. He actually, the first Texas. 24 hours, beat Bernie. Right, barely, by ever barely. so slightly. Yeah, but. Uh, but he, you know, <coughs> he has a lot of folks across the country who were donating to his Senate campaign in Texas in these small sums um, that he was hoping to mobilize uh, once he launched. Now, the reason why I, while he may have uh, eclipsed Sanders in the uh first 24 hours of his candidacy, he also launched much later in the quarter. So I think it's it's very unlikely that he'd be able to right. beat that number. Um, though we'll see. We, we haven't yeah. heard from, from his folks. I'm surprised we haven't heard from him, which always makes me believe that, it, that, that they're massaging the numbers or something. Well, I, I don't know. You but. also want... I mean, look, this is a very, very long, protracted battle. Uh, all, a lot of these news cycles... 
they don't matter as much as the campaigns think they do. But you always want to feel good about what, what your campaign is doing. And so you always want to have, if you have good news to share, uh, you want to do it at the most advantageous time. And he's right. probably looking for the perfect time in the, in the news cycle uh, to come forward with that number if, if it is positive. And given the first 24 hours, I would guess that it would be, even, even though he was only a candidate for uh, a few weeks in the first quarter of this year, I would guess that it's going to be pretty good news for his campaign. They're looking for the perfect time for to release it. For, yes. Yeah. And, and so, right. you know, he, they don't have to, have to disclose it to the Federal Election Commission until Monday, April 15th. So there's plenty of time uh, between now and then to, to find that ideal news cycle. It, we also have not heard from, I find it more interesting, maybe we haven't heard from Elizabeth Warren, because if there's anybody who has to compete with Bernie in that far left lane, if you will, of the right. um, Democratic Party, it's Elizabeth Warren, right? And, um, and she does not have, start out with, or did not start out with the built-in base that Bernie had left over from 2016. Following politics for the past uh, decade or so, you think of Elizabeth Warren as one of the best fundraisers among Democrats. Uh, she shattered records when she ran against Scott Brown in 2012 in Massachusetts. Um, but the nature of Democratic fundraising has changed and moved uh, online for these folks through ActBlue who are donating these small sums of money, often recurring donations. Um, that is something that Elizabeth Warren did raise a lot of money for her Senate candidacy last year, too. Uh, but she wasn't Beto O'Rourke, mm -hmm. um, and she wasn't some of the other kind of Democratic rock stars uh, and Bernie Sanders in, in 2015 and 2016. Um, and they are competing, I think, for uh, a similar uh, group of voters. Um, and and I anecdotally, we've heard that maybe things haven't been quite as robust as, as they'd hoped, but obviously uh, we'll see what her campaign has to say in the next week and a half uh, before they're required to legally disclose uh, uh, how much money they raised in that first quarter. And remember that she also launched on New Year's Eve. She was first one out. Really right. So was. she's already yeah. disclosed sort of her first 24 hours of fundraising yeah. because that report was due to the Federal Election Commission. Uh, the one for the fourth quarter of oh. 2018 oh, was due yeah. uh, at the end of January. So she's already disclosed a, a small portion of her fundraising. And whatever she releases in this first quarter is not going to have that initial bump that mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders and that O'Rourke and all of her rivals will have gotten. Right. Uh, and, and so it's probably best, even though it only is one extra day, it's probably best taken holistically yeah. uh, with the December 31st fundraiser. What I find is, and you alluded to this, is that we've really seen a total shakeup of fundraising, uh, uh, political fundraising among Democratic candidates. I mean, it used to be uh, when I was very active in raising money for <laughs> candidates and for the state party of California, you know, you there was the max people could give. I think it's twenty eight hundred. It is twenty eight hundred this 2800. year for for uh, so, for an election. So if if you're yeah. running in both a primary and a general election, you can collect up to fifty six hundred right. uh, from an individual. So it used to be we would identify those people who could give that kind of money, mm -hmm. right, and bring them in early and get their and, and encourage them to write two checks, you know, right. twenty eight hundred and another one. And then they'd be they'd be maxed out. That's it. Mm -hmm. And that was it. You could not go back to them. You still had to invite them to all your fundraisers and all your events because they were your big donors. Right. But you couldn't get any more money out of them. No. Some people found, but then they give to a pack, you know, ways around. Their spouse maybe. gives, their kids give. Right. Sure. Mm -hmm. But that was, and now 
the plan is you get to you identify this army of mm-hmm. small donors you can go back to again and again and again and again and and it's just an inexhaustible supply the the Sanders campaign put out yesterday that um 99.99% of their donors can give again right yeah it it is um definitely something that and it, it's something that's been a big boost for democrats uh over the past few years um we how, how often did we talk last year during uh, a number of these house races about democrats who were raising record record sums and largely doing it through these small donors online um mm-hmm. the, these were people and and they were getting donations from all over the country uh well outside of their own little house district uh republicans have are are desperately trying to match this uh and haven't really found a way to do it yet um their voters don't necessarily look like democratic voters and so donating online might not be uh, uh as easy for them um I do think it is going to reveal once we finally get all of the reports, not just these uh, little leaks and, and announcements from the campaigns, but we actually get to to look under the hood and look at these reports on April 15th. I think it's going to reveal a split among the Democratic field, the candidates who are tapping into that enthusiasm, mm-hmm. uh, like Sanders or O'Rourke right. or even Kamala Harris, who also raises plenty of money from Max yeah, donors, but yes, she raises right. a lot of money online from small donors, too. Um, and then candidates who struggle to gain traction there. Uh, and th- this could be seen as a proxy for uh, gaining public support uh, from some of the voters that are, are going to uh, have a bigger influence in a Democratic primary than they would maybe in a general election or yeah, Republican Because primary. I think you can say that small donor, I may be painting with too broad a brush, but small donor is more likely to me to mean activist, volunteer, grassroots mm-hmm. strength, right, than your people who write the big checks. Right. Uh, absolutely. I know, abso- yeah. absolutely. Um, and this is going to be a strength for the candidates who are able to tap into that. And, and we're seeing right. a handful be able to do that now. What does your early polling tell you about who the, uh, if we could distinguish, uh, identify the serious candidates from among this field of, of 50? And it, it seems always to come out, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke, Maybe Elizabeth Warren up there, or, yeah, and, or Kamala Harris. I would among add Kamala top, Harris to that list. Among um, the top five. Well, I, I think it's interesting the the uh, role that Biden has played in some of these early polls. He's been essentially now now he's had a, a rough couple uh, of days, few days, uh, yeah, right, uh, in the news cycle. But it's and and that's not yet. There haven't been any polls yet, really, that that would reflect if that would were to have an impact, and, and we don't know. Um, but he has been remarkably steady, even as all these other candidates have had their moments uh, announcing and rolling out their campaigns. Uh, he's been remarkably steady where between a quarter and a third of Democrats say that when they are confronted with the list, they're picking him uh, as the candidate they want to face Donald Trump. And, and, you know, you could chalk that up to name identification. You could chalk that up to uh, Democratic voters uh, prioritizing potentially electability or what they think of as electability in the candidate that can beat Donald Trump. Um, it, it's difficult to say, but as long as he has that role and is, and is co- uh, commanding about a quarter to a third of the vote, uh, it sort of limits how many other candidates can be in the top tier uh, because he's gobbling up a, a pretty large uh, percentage of the vote share, particularly when you consider how many candidates there are yeah. in this field. 
uh, and that prevents other candidates from from rising up. Um, I, I think the list that you gave is essentially where we kind of see the top tier right now. If you had to, uh, it, it, I think if you had a primary or caucus or a national primary, which obviously we don't have, this is a series of primaries, progressive primaries, uh, move from state to state. I think that's probably where things would end up, that those would be the candidates uh, who would receive the most support and maybe move on uh, to the next states. And, and we would see the other candidates kind of drop out. But there's plenty of time. Keep yeah. in mind, I, I think one thing that gets overlooked um, and you could think of it as, as you could deride it as just a TV show and it is just a TV show. But these debates are going to have, I think, uh, a really big role uh, in in whittling this field down. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are going to watch them. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And, and they don't start till June. Right. Uh, but it's that's a good good point uh, time to point out as we've uh, reported before um the first debate will be June 26 27 uh in Miami mm-hmm. uh and that's NBC MSNBC and Univision it's two be nights on, two nights on all three channels prime yeah, time prime time yeah it's broadcast television huge yeah huge. no the, a lot of people and, are going to watch these and we know the the Criteria for getting on stage means you have to have one percent and at least three polls that have mm-hmm. not yet been identified. I don't think they have been identified. Oh, they actually. have, and okay. we're, we're tracking Are... them. And, and most of the candidates uh, that you would think of as, as having a chance to make the stage have qualified by that measure. By, by that measure, right? The second measure is sixty-five thousand donors um, total, uh, online donors, a minimum of two hundred in twenty different states, and. Several people, like Pete Buttigieg, mm-hmm. Andrew Yang, have already qualified for that. Sort of Bernie, of course, has, right. and Kamala Harris and the rest. So basically, they're all going to be on stage, right? Right. The only danger is that if there are more than 20 candidates who yeah, meet right. these qualifications, the first thing they do is they whittle it down to just the candidates who've met both. Yes. Both right. ways in. And then after that, if there's still more than 20, and right right now it doesn't look like there will be, but, you know, we haven't heard Joe Biden. We haven't heard from Michael Bennett. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a number of Democrats who've, Terry McAuliffe, a number of Democrats who've kind of thrown their or dipped their hat into the ring, but not yet thrown it into the ring. Um, so it's there's a chance we could get to more than 20. After that, if, if you still have more than 20 candidates who've met both of these criteria, then it's going to come down to a polling average, mm-hmm. um, which can get a little dicey. Yeah, just right. to knock off the bottom 21, 22, 23, however many. Well, uh, I, and I think the key that has not been so this is going to be big, big, and it's going to be worth watching. And the se- so I started the second debate now has been announced today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be in July, July 30 and 31, again, two uh, primetime back to back on CNN out of Detroit. Um, and the field may not have whittled down, you know, in that one month, right? I wouldn't expect it to. I do think August uh, will be the <laughs> month when a lot of that happens because yeah. for a number of different reasons. One, there is no debate in August. We don't come back until September mm-hmm. uh, with the third debate. Uh, August is a time when a lot of candidates spend a lot of time in Iowa state fairs in August. Uh, I think that will be a natural time for a lot of these candidates to kind of consider. Um, August is when we've seen a lot of Folks drop out in the past. I, I think that was when kind of Tim Pawlenty dropped out of the Republican field. Uh, I think that will be the first kind of opportunity to cull the, he- the herd a little bit. Um, and then the next one probably comes in the middle of the fall, uh, just before the final sprint until Iowa. Right. And uh, New Hampshire. To me, the key decision is going to be who's on stage which night. 
and um, we've I've talked to the DNC people about that. They say it's going to be purely random. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think the fix is going to be in a little bit, meaning they don't want all the big players to be on the first night, right? Then it would look like the Republican debates from last time where you had your varsity team and your JV team, right? So, for example, I would think that they would find somehow find a way that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, for example, or Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are not going to be the same night, right? Just to keep people tuned in for the second night. Yeah, no, but, that, that's an interesting question. And those dynamics are going to be really fascinating. Look, these candidates yeah, haven't yeah. really started taking shots at each other. No, um, no. But they will. Uh, and that could largely be determined where these rivalries set up could largely be determined by this random drawing of who's yeah, matched yes, up against yes, whom yeah, on right. in which debate. And, and there's a chance that, you know, if Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders really dominate the polls right now, um, and there's a 50 percent chance that if the, if Joe Biden runs, that they're not on stage together uh, in mm-hmm. June in Miami. And then there's going to be a 50% chance that they're not on stage together yeah. in July right. in Detroit. And if you come out of the end of July and the two can- the two main candidates haven't actually debated one another, then what are we doing here? I know. Yeah. Fascinating. Do you think it's going to be a long slog? I think it already is a long slog. <laughs> um, yeah, it feels like it. it does. I mean, look. Meaning this is, it'll be... Early into uh, closer to the convention in 2020 before we well, know the candidate. I, look, I I don't know. Um, I do think that the field is fractured right now. Uh, it's this is certainly not the the 2020 Democratic Party is not the first political party to go into the middle of the year before uh, the primaries and caucuses without any kind of clear uh, nominee. Yeah. Um, these things often get sorted out. Uh, this time four years ago, uh, everyone assumed that Donald Trump was threatening to run but wasn't going to run. And he was, when he was included in the polls, he was only registering in the like the high single digits. Um, there's a long way to go. Uh, I, I do think when I when I say it already is a long slog, we're talking about uh, tens of millions of dollars raised by these candidates uh, in the first quarter of the year before. That usually doesn't happen because candidates yeah. don't usually get in this early. Um, really, Joe Biden, and I mentioned Michael Bennett and, and, and Terry McAuliffe, but Joe Biden's really the only candidate who's waited till the second quarter, mm-hmm. uh, supposedly, mm-hmm. to announce his campaign. That's that's really unusual. Usually, this is around the time when the race kicks off, for the most part. Um, and so when I say it's already a long slog, I, I think we're getting off to an earlier start. Yeah. Uh, I want to also ask you about your uh, what, what your polling has shown uh, in Donald Trump's standing since release, well, since completion of the Mueller investigation and release of the four-page summary, not the full report, but uh, impacted him at all? I this mean, may shock you after two-plus years of a yeah. very stable, uh, <laughs> mostly unpopular president. Uh, we haven't seen any impact. Uh, we have his approval rating this week at 42%. Um, right after the release of the attorney general's letter last week, we had it at 42%. Really? Right before the attorney general's uh, huh. letter, we had it at 41%. Uh, he's been hovering between 41 and 43%, I think, now for the last couple of months. Uh, he's in the low 40s. That, that's where it is. And, um, you know, it, it so seems even like... if you took the White House spin, 
The investigation's over. The president's been totally exonerated, totally vindicated. What you're saying is the American people don't see it that way. Well, I think I think the the balance of the polling that we've seen in the last week shows that the American people understand the kind of nuance of this report and the fact that they don't have all the information. Um, they are also seeing what they do have through their own partisan lens. Republicans um, believe, if you want to call it the White House a spin, they 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 do believe largely that this vindicates President mm-hmm. Trump. Democrats don't. And it, even if it did, even if the Mueller report did come out and it was totally vindicating, I'm not sure the Democrats would believe it. Their, people are seeing yeah. this through their partisan spin. They know what they think about Donald Trump. Already. All right. Steve, there's so much going on. It's so good to see you. Thanks so much for coming in. And you can follow Steve, at, of course, on Politico, politico.com. And uh, we're kind of just getting started. It's, it does seem like a long slog already. But we got I a look long forward way. to being back many times a between, long before go. anybody even votes. You bet you will. Uh, Top of the hour, Dara Lynn joins us. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. His economic advisors are telling him this would be a disaster, but Donald Trump says, hell no, I still want to shut down the border. Hey, hello, everybody. Here we go. It's a Wednesday. Wednesday, April 3rd, 2019. And the Bill Press Show, booming out to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, with our uh, nose right to the grindstone as we bring you up to date on the big stories of the day, what's happening here in Washington, around the country, uh, and around the globe. Yes, Donald Trump continuing uh, to uh, demand and insist that he is going to shut down the border, just like he shut down the government, his answer to anything even though, as I mentioned, his top economic advisors and uh, almost every economic or financial organization in the country are telling him, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. This will only hurt the American economy. Uh, He doesn't seem to be listening to them, repeats his threat to shut down the border uh, every other hour. Uh, Meanwhile, the Washington Post reporting uh, they're keeping track of Donald Trump's lies so far in 802 days of his presidency He has clocked in with 9,451 lies, and uh, this year it is at a rate of 22 lies a day. Uh, And Bernie Sanders blowing away the other Democratic candidates by reporting raising a mammoth $18.2 million in small donor uh, contributions, all of those raised online, average contribution of 20 bucks in the first quarter of 2019. So, lots to talk about. 
We want to hear from you, your comments on the news of the day on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. And we uh, dive right in with the help of Dara Lind, who covers immigration issues for Vox, coming up. But first, this is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. So Mary and Gabe, they are a couple, and they were on their way to the hospital for a scheduled C-section. She uh-huh. was pregnant. She was ready to have the kid. They were on their way to the hospital. And Gabe, the father, says, you know what? I think I'm going to make this official. Let's go get married on the way to the hospital. Now, they are in Indiana. So uh, wait a they, minute, she's in labor. She, she's not in labor. It was a planned oh. C-section. Oh, a C-section. So they had a they had an appointment. Oh, so she was on her way to go do this, and right, yeah, and, and they said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna go get married on the way to the hospital. So they went to the, uh, uh, the building there where you go do these things. I mentioned they were in Indiana. They were in South Bend, Indiana. Oh, so they walked into the building. And no one was there except for the, the mayor, mayor of no. South Bend, Indiana, who presided over their wedding and married <laughs> the couple and then sent them on their way to go to the hospital where she gave birth to a healthy baby. Here is Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who uh, talked about the experience. First, I was like, were you sure? And then I thought, well, you know, that's I'm here to serve, so I might as well make myself useful. Yeah, he's here to serve in whatever capacity might be needed, including an emergency wedding on the way to a uh, having your first child. He did not perform the C-section. He did not perform the C-section. <laughs> he did perform the marriage, See, the, the ceremony. You know, this is my thing about all of these stories we're hearing about Pete Buttigieg. Like, Without expressing any opinion on his candidacy for president one way or the other, my take from all of this is being mayor of a mid-sized American town sounds really fun. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Totally. But I didn't know he was still mayor. He's still yeah, mayor. He's still, He's still mayor. mayor. He's still mayor. Yeah, well, exactly. Okay, then the second question. What the hell was he doing in City Hall if he's running for president? <laughs> hey, he's gonna keep the he's gonna keep the city running as well, you know. Uh, and finally, uh, Temple University in Philadelphia they made a uh, a big change this week. They announced that they are going to be banning the use of tobacco products in all indoor and outdoor spaces on campus. Now, a lot of students are not pleased with this. Uh, even yeah. some professors are not pleased oh. with this. Uh, I, I knew a couple of professors who were big-time chain smokers. But for now, the policy is in place. This is the Bill Press Show. $18.2 million, Bernie Sanders leaping out in front of the pack, at least on the online fundraising uh, measure, with a mammoth uh, take of $18.2 million. 99.99% of Bernie's donors can give again and again and again and again. Uh, leaping ahead of the pack there for sure. What do you say, everybody? We haven't heard from all the candidates yet. Great to see you today. It is the Bill Press Show here on a Wednesday, Wednesday, April 3rd, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., as always, with the news of the day, such as it is here in Washington, what's happening at the Congress and down at the White House as well, around the country and around the globe, uh, and uh, Donald Trump continuing to threaten to shut down the border, even though he's getting uh, conflicting advice, uh, warnings from his top economic advisors. It's not a good thing to do. 
Again, we'll bring you the news of the day. You tell us what it all means to you. We look forward to hearing from you on Twitter, at BP Show, uh, and help us through uh, some of the big immigration issues of the day. As always, Dara Lind covers those issues as a senior reporter for Vox at Vox.com. Hello, Darren. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Good morning. So it's reported that uh, Larry Kudlow, his top economic advisor, Kevin Hazard, who's chair of the Economic Council, Council, of, economic Council of Economic Advisors, they're both saying, no, Mr. President, you can't shut down the border. $1.7 billion in goods coming back and forth every day. And uh, he seems determined to do it. Yeah. What's th- your read? Is this just a big bluff on his part? Um. So... Usually, before last week, I would have said yes, to be honest with you. Like, this is, if you think about the the time that he threatened to shut down FEMA aid to California, like he said on Twitter that he had done it, and then there was absolutely no effort within the government to actually implement that. Like, that's kind of, if you use that as the standard for presidential vaporware, if you will, uh, that's where I think of border closure threats. Like, they're not, they're a thing he keeps threatening to do. It's... There's never been any indication within the government that he's actually, you know, tried to implement them. But so were the cuts to cut off threats to cut off aid to Central America. And he actually, you know, the State Department actually did notify Congress that it's doing some of that over the weekend. So I feel like things may have shifted. Like this is an idea that Donald Trump has seized on as a good idea. No one has yet persuaded him that it's a bad idea. As a matter of fact, given what we know about Trump, it's totally possible that people persuading him it's a bad idea have made him more determined to do it. And so it's not implausible that he's just really determined to prevail. That said, the way that he talks about it and the way that everybody else in his administration talks about it are very different. Trump talks about it as like something that, you know, the U.S. would enthusiastically do, that it would be a complete shutdown for a very long time, that it would show Mexico who's boss. His advisors, I mean, everybody from Jared Kushner to Mick Mulvaney to DHS officials are running around saying this would be a last resort. We would only do this if we were taking port staff and sending them to support Border Patrol officials between ports of entry and taking care of migrant families. So like that is and that's something that they're already doing. They're already there's about 750 port officials have been reassigned this week. So like the kind of delays that you would associate with cutting staff at ports are already happening. And it's just a question of whether they continue to do that. So that looks very different from the kind of sorry port closed because Trump says so thing that Trump himself is threatening. What is the reality of the economic impact if we were to shut down the border? So, I mean, it's huge. It's massive, right? You were saying $1.7 billion in goods every day. And that's not to mention the, you know, what's called legitimate trade and travel, which includes lots of people who come across the border every day for work, for school. There's even the kind of delays that we're seeing, you know, there was 150 truck backup at one of the ports in California uh, at the end of the day on, I think it was California, at the end of the day on Monday. Like, that's huge. A lot of these are perishable goods. And even just the threats of shutting down the border, the the business impact of not being certain that when you send a truck to go north to the United States or south to Mexico, that it's going to get there in time, that's a massive chilling effect on business. And so, you know, the... And some of these it's, are perishables, right? Oh, I mean, a lot like, of them are perishables, right? Like yeah. the the line that was going around, you know, the the factoid going around the internet the last couple of days is that the U.S. would run out of avocados in three weeks if the U.S. Mexico yeah, border right. would be shut down entirely. And like, you know, that's 
that's a cute way to put it, but obviously, A, that's a lot of people's livelihoods, and B, there are lots of perishable goods that are going to be threatened here. And it's just, it's there's no way to get around that if you're a business owner. The only thing you can do is try as hard as you can to lobby whatever government officials to keep everything open. Right. And this is something uh, which, that, like, frankly, John Cornyn understands, right? Like, you don't see the Republican governor of Arizona came out and said this would be a bad idea. And you really don't see Republican governors coming out and saying this thing Donald Trump wants to do would be bad unless their you know economies are really on the line. Right. Uh, at the same time, again, down at the White House, um, the um, uh, the. The president is giving one message, and uh, the person who reflects, I think, most uh, most days exactly what the president's thinking, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders yesterday, uh, no briefing, right. but she gave a statement to Fox News on her way back into the West Wing. She was corralled by reporters, and she says, hey, Democrats have left us no choice. Oh, look, Democrats are leaving us absolutely no choice at this point. We've already had to move roughly 750 personnel from ports of entry uh, at this point, and it looks like we're going to have to move more, which will force those lines to go longer to cross the border, and eventually it may be that it's the best decision that we close the border. There it is, she says. Right. And, and of course, remember that that's that's not the way that Trump talks about it at all. Right. This is the kind of, oh, gee, we know it's bad, but it's a last resort. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that's interesting here is until yesterday, the line was Mexico has to stop people from coming. If Mexico doesn't stop people from coming, we'll close the border. Now the line is it's a little bit there's still a little bit of, well, Mexico has to keep doing more. But there's also if Congress doesn't do what we want, we'll have to close the border. And that's because the Trump administration, or at least DHS, has been making a renewed effort to pressure Congress to make it easier for DHS to deport Central American minors who arrive alone and to make it easier for them to detain families until they get deported or get asylum rather than having to release them under a court settlement. So that's kind of that's they're trying to increase the pressure on Congress and rhetorically using we're going to close the border as the way to do that. But then Trump said yesterday, well, we have to end chain migration. We have to end the visa lottery piling yet again for, you know, this is I, I've lost track of how many times I've gone on your show and talked to you about all the demands that they keep piling on anytime they go mm -hmm. to Congress. Um, so it's not really clear that this very focused if you don't do these two things, we're going to close the border threat is going to succeed as long as Trump is saying, well, if you don't pass my entire immigration agenda, I'm going to close the border, which is not as credible a threat. Right. Now, now closing the border uh, comes on top of something that, that they, the, the, the threat to close the border comes on top of something they did do over the weekend, which is cut off aid to uh, what Fox News called the three <laughs> Mexican countries. Uh, otherwise known as the three independent countries of the northern, so-called Northern Triangle, I guess, of mm -hmm. Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, um, to which even uh, let me let me just ask you, isn't that sort of a backward move? I mean, if the idea is to prevent more people from coming north, doesn't this sort of make conditions worse in those three countries? That's certainly the elite consensus, right? As recently as two years ago when John Kelly was running the Department of Homeland Security, both 
Republican policy elites and Democratic policy elites agreed that the real answer to any migration issue was to address the root causes of migration, which meant making it better for people to stay in their home countries. Reducing the violence so, there and improving the economies exactly, of those countries. Exactly. Yes. So, you know, by that logic, if sending the money makes it better for people and harder and less appealing for them to leave, then cutting the money off would do the opposite. It's not quite... You know, the question of when aid works and how long it takes to work is a very complicated one. And so nobody believes that cutting off aid is going to make it better, certainly not immediately. But the questions of what is going to happen in the short term are a little more complicated. The one thing that is really interesting here is El Salvador of those three countries has been the one that's seen a decreasing number of people Mm -hmm. leaving in the last year. And the Trump administration, as of last summer, was really touting that as a victory for the root causes approach. No, I, so we're gonna, like, word... that's going to be the place where we're really, I think, going to see in the near future whether the aid cutoff has any impact. Right. No, I read the statements even as recently as last week where the Department of Homeland Security was touting what's happening in El Salvador. Uh, the numbers I saw, they the numbers were like cut in half from one year to the next of refugees fleeing from El Salvador. And they said, this is a result of the fact that we're working with the government in El Salvador to improve conditions there. Right. And, you know, you always want to be a little bit wary of the kind of correlation causation thing going on there. But there have been fairly robust studies of especially child migration showing that locations in the Northern Triangle where homicides got reduced by 10 over a five-year period, like a 10 10 homicide drop in the homicide rate was correlated, was associated with a six-person drop in how many children were leaving and getting apprehended in the United States. And like, that doesn't sound like a ton, but if you do that, like, small community by small community, that's a pretty big impact, especially because children leaving alone or for that matter, traveling in families is such so much at the heart of the humanitarian concern that both the Trump administration and Democrats are touting as the heart of the current crisis. Uh, so, Daryl Lynn with us from Vox, talking immigration issues at Vox.com. Isn't, um, you've mentioned a few times, families, uh, and uh, I guess and, uh, this is not my area of expertise, mm-hmm. but my observation, it seems to me, that part of the problem is that we're dealing with a different kind. Is this true? We're dealing with a different kind of immigrant today than we were 10 or 15 years ago. Absolutely. This right. is an, a And weird... now we're dealing with families mm-hmm. who are coming. I, I was watching some video of these people coming across yesterday, and these were not like, I'm from California, right? And we dealt with this a long time. It was people, men, who were coming Mexican across. Single Mexican men. Single Mexican men who were coming across to work in the fields in California, yep. right? Basically or sometimes a hotel, whatever. But now, these are men, women, their families, mothers, fathers, with their little kids holding their hands coming across the border. Are we equipped to deal with that, with a um, family-centered, centric immigration? No, absolutely not. And this is something that, you know, the Trump administration has been saying for the last several months. It's just that because... Because of Trump and the way that he addresses the issue, it's been harder for them to get any traction with Democrats in believing that they have any intention of actually dealing with it in a humane way. But the system that we have right now is equipped to deport people quickly and detain them until they're deported. And that, A, doesn't there are legal protections that exist for people who claim who seek asylum for children who are traveling on their own 
for families who, you know, can't be detained for an indefinite length of time. And there are concerns about the conditions in which those people are being kept in the meantime. Like Border Patrol doesn't consider itself a detention agency, right? Their job is to get people yeah. over to ISIS yeah. as quickly as possible. And at this point, they're dealing with, you know, these are families, they're large groups in ways that we haven't seen before. They're often coming to remote parts of the border where they're not used to apprehending many migrants at all. And so people are being kept in facilities that aren't meant to keep people at all, much less families. Like under the freeway in El Paso. Under the freeway in El Paso is a great example of this. And, you know, Border Patrol was saying at the time that they physically had nowhere else to put people. And then over the weekend, they said, OK, you know, we found a safer way to do it. And it's not really clear where, you know, what that alternative is. But, you know, there has been a lot of just because the Trump administration has lost so much trust among large swaths of the public, there's been a lot of, well, are they, you know, is this just a photo op? Are they manufacturing this? And my understanding of it is that, well, yeah, you, you know, in a world where you could just take all of the money that they want to spend on the border wall and spend it on this stuff instead, maybe you wouldn't have this scenario. But just at the agency level or the operational level, it doesn't appear to me that Border Patrol can just spring up facilities that are equipped to handle children, you know, in the blink of an eye. And it's really this is the problem is things are changing very quickly. We have we, you know, numbers well, shot up from January to February. They shot up from February to March. It's not clear how long this is going to last and what form it's going to take. And it's not very easy to respond to that in a nimble manner. Well, and also um, with Donald Trump's rhetoric and his hateful rhetoric from the day he announced as president against the immigrant population, um, we saw last week as you or last month, as you indicated, 100,000. Right. Apprehended. Yeah, they haven't officially announced that, but they were saying as recently as last week that that, that it was projected to be 100,000 across the border in March. Uh, yeah. Isn't that a sign that his rhetoric and his policies aren't working? So it's always really tricky to analyze what people understand when they come to the U.S. about policy and rhetoric. Right. Like, yes, it's true that it's it's true that he's certainly do, not the fact scaring that Donald them away. Trump is, right. The fact that Donald Trump is president did depress people coming to the U.S. in the first few months of his presidency. Like that was yeah, anomalously low. Right. And that actually has that's now part of the problem is like they're looking at this precipitous rise over the last two years from this very, very low starting point. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely not sufficient. If you ask the Trump administration, they'll say that's because the things we want to do keep getting held up in court. And it's because people know on the ground that if they come to the U.S., they'll be released into the interior, which is not necessarily false. Like there definitely is evidence that smugglers will offer discounts if you bring children along because they know it's easier to successfully get people into the U.S. But it's also true that there are a lot of other factors in why people leave. And, you know, focusing on what the U.S. is doing always raises the, po the kind of possibility of, well, that means there's just kind of there's some key we could unlock, you know, or some lock we could unlock. Like once we figured out the right combination of policies, we could stop people from coming, which doesn't necessarily appear to be true. The The really tough problem here is a lot of these people are coming, you know, do have legitimate asylum claims or would have legitimate asylum claims. And many of them are coming for reasons that don't necessarily align with current asylum law, but are still like, you know, dire economic need, for example, or you know, serious concerns about their personal safety and the difficulty of aligning what U.S. asylum law is, is 
built to do, which is to protect people from government oppression with what happens in cases where we're dealing with climate migration, economic migration, government migration, domestic violence, gang violence. It's really it's hard to, you know, to map those two onto each other. And it's even harder to look at a group of a few hundred people at a time and go, okay, you will ultimately have a valid asylum claim in the U.S. You won't. Mm -hmm. We um, we've talked before in speaking about uh, families and some of the problems that they face about at least there were two cases where children died mm -hmm. in uh, ICE custody. Border Patrol custody. Border Patrol. Is, Bo yeah. That's right. Um, what do we know about them now? Uh, there are a lot of questions about, you know, they blame the father for not giving this kid enough to drink or eat or whatever, but what do we know? Uh, we actually, there have been autopsies in both cases released over the last week. Uh, I I don't remember the result of the autopsy in the case of Felipe Alonso Gomez, who's the child who died, or whose death was announced on Christmas. Uh, in the case of Jacqueline Kalmakeen, the death was caused by uh, an infection that led to sepsis. It was so, you know, Trump took that opportunity to lie and say that her father had admitted that he didn't give her any water, which isn't true. But it doesn't that autopsy doesn't really answer a lot of questions because it's not. It's still not clear in her case whether there was any particular thing that anyone could have done. She was in Border Patrol custody for a while, but they laid out a pretty comprehensive timeline of, you know, they had come to a really remote place in New Mexico. It took a while to get the buses there. There are lots of questions about what can be done when somebody doesn't necessarily like doesn't speak Spanish in addition to not speaking English. Um, the, there are now Border Patrol has instituted universal medical screenings of children so that they are no longer relying on parents to kind of flag, hey, can, my child is you know, sick. Can you look at them? Which might get around some of the language access issues, but not a ton of them if the children themselves don't necessarily know how to communicate. And it's just it's there's not it's it's very difficult to figure out what a kind of foolproof, you know, what a 100% safety model would look like that isn't just throwing gajillions of dollars at places where people may stop coming at any given time. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure that you have to have in place. And when you're dealing with smuggling routes that are bus-based, which means, A, it's easier to take people who may not be in the peak of health on a journey because it's only five days by bus as opposed to walking through Mexico. Mm -hmm. And B, they can change where their location, where their destination is pretty easily. The idea of building up like a fully equipped medical center in Antelope Wells doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah. No, I I, I understand that. Uh, by the way, we're going to talk talking a lot more about these border issues with um, a person who represents a border state, uh, Congressman Ruben Gallego from Arizona's 7th Congressional District, uh, joins us uh, just a little over five minutes from now here uh, on uh, the uh, on the Bill Press Show. It'll be interesting to get his perspective uh, as a representative from a border state. Uh, the front page of the New York Times this morning, or I'm sorry, the Post this morning, um, has an article that... Um, kind of maybe reflects what we've come to expect from the Trump administration that is going in several different directions all at one time. Uh, but the article, which I haven't had a chance to read in its entirety, I just skimmed it, uh, is that while Donald Trump is still raising hell about the wall and shutting down the border and about uh, the Northern Triangle and all of that, uh, focusing on the illegal immigration, that Jared Kushner 
is pushing a plan to increase the number of legal immigrants, which we've been told Steve Miller at the White House and formerly John Kelly, their goal was to even not only cut that back on illegal immigration, but legal immigration. My question is, what's going on? I am sure that Jared Kushner thinks that the problem with immigration reform in Congress is that no one has really thought about it hard before. Um, my understanding from these stories, and we get one of these about every two weeks, is that Jared Kushner, high on the success of bipartisan criminal justice reform, which was a thing where there was a bipartisan consensus in Congress before Trump stepped before in, Trump st- yes. is, con- is convinced that there's also a bipartisan consensus on immigration, which there used to be but fell apart partly because of the changes that Trump brought in the Republican Party. And so I, you know, he this appears to be a thing that he's convinced that he can do there. The fact that the Trump administration and it's, you know, not just Stephen Miller, but other things that they have done have consistently made it harder to immigrate legally to the United States. Like, I'm not convinced that there is the political will within the White House for that. And also, remember, Trump was out there yesterday saying we need to end chain migration in the visa lottery, which together account for, I mean, family-based migration accounts for a majority of all legal immigration to the U.S. So, yeah, like, if this is how he's spending his time, then maybe at some point the stars are going to align and they will find some way to get some of what they want. But... The White House's inability to pick and choose which of its immigration priorities it wants is a problem, even when it's trying to make small deals. And this kind of big galaxy brain deal, when they haven't figured out how they feel about most categories of legal immigration and they haven't figured out how they feel about the possibility of legalizing unauthorized immigrants, strikes me as, you know, you have a vision in your head of the signing ceremony and you're not necessarily (laughs) as, you know, you don't necessarily understand the policy obstacles that it's going to take to write the bill. Yeah, no, it does seem to be, be to be from Never Never Land, but um, again, this this administration often suffers from an acute case of galaxy brain. This is, I think, you know, an, one symptom of that. They have this idea that there is a grand bargain to be had, and not necessarily an idea of the negotiating that it would take to get there, and what they would have to not only give up, but they would have to extract a commitment from the president to support a bill. Weeks but, before the bill actually got signed, we can't necessarily understand the pre- expect the president to, you know, to to agree to support a bill and then support it hours later, <laughs> which he's proven. Right. Exactly. Re- repeatedly. Like Mitch McConnell's not going to bring a bill on an immigration bill on the floor if he doesn't have the president's signature, you know, in blood, essentially, that he's going to sign it. Yeah. And he found out uh, when it came down to shutting down the government that the promise uh, not to do so uh, didn't last very long once Mark Meadows went to see him. Right. Uh, final question um, uh, before we welcome Congressman Gallego to the studio is uh, Donald Trump now, the, the new slogan is finish the wall, finish the wall. Are we building any new wall? Uh, they've started clearing ground, I believe, in El Paso or around there for what's going to be the first quote unquote new wall segment. At this point, honestly, you know, they've the between those and the Pentagon, the new Pentagon money. Yeah, we're going to start seeing some new wall. I've never particularly understood the importance of new versus replacement wall. There's something, you know, this. On Friday, Donald Trump's going to visit a segment yeah. in California that, like, has a plaque on it that says that it's the first segment of Donald Trump's wall. And, yeah, technically, it's a replacement of 20-year-old landing mat. Like, at a certain <laughs> point, saying whether it's Trump's wall or whether it was a barrier that was already there, 
it it seems like it's becoming increasingly semantic and increasingly a little bit unimportant even as we you know and maybe this will change again as we get into 2020 mm-hmm. but it certainly seems that Trump's own obsessions have metastasized beyond just the wall to chain migration to fixing asylum which you know things things that are more obviously realities of the system than the idea that people are coming in and just need a wall to stop them but also there you know because the wall can't be built on Mexican soil, places where there are wall are still places where families are coming in. They're stepping on U.S. Mm-hmm. soil and then they can mm-hmm. claim asylum. And so it, we're going to start seeing more of those visuals as there becomes more wall. Right. Uh, he wants a big golden word, Trump, I think, on top of every section of the wall. Daryl Lynn from Vox uh, on top uh, uh, better than anybody else on this uh, immigration, these important immigration issues. Thanks so much for coming in. Vox.com, and as we said, from Arizona's 7th Congressional District, Congressman Congressman Ruben Gallego uh, tell us his take from a border state perspective, uh, plus a lot of other stuff going on in Congress coming up next. Uh, after a quick break, we'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. And on a Wednesday, Wednesday, April 3rd, what do you say, folks? It is the Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, as we come to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, where we're brought to you today by the American Federation of Teachers, the great men and women of Teachers of America, under the leadership of President Randy Weingarten, members of the AFT. Uh, we salute them during the Lord's work in our classrooms every day and uh, thank them for their support of the program as well. Uh, pleasure to welcome to the studio, uh, representing now in his fifth for the fifth straight year in Congress, Arizona's 7th Congressional District, the great city of Phoenix, Arizona, Congressman Ruben Gallego. Congressman, good to see you. Thank you for having me. Uh, nice to see a Democrat from a red state. But we, are, we are not a red state. We're a purple state and it's quickly turning say, blue. Yeah, yeah Arizona's really, really coming around. We huh? are. I mean, we have four statewide elected Democrats. We almost picked up the state house. We have five Democrats out of nine elected to members of Congress. Uh, we're gonna I didn't realize the delegation was five out of nine. Now, Absolutely, huh? yeah. we have this right. thing called independent redistricting, which the you know, uh, rest of the country, if they did, I think would be much better off too. Right, and a new Democratic senator and a new Democratic right. senator. Yeah, so congratulations. That's thank, you, good. thank you. You you're helping lead the way there. I'm I doing my best. Yeah. <laughs> what what is from as a border state? What do you see the impact would be were Donald Trump to close the border as he threatens to do? Well, it, would, it, would, it would first just throw Arizona into a, a recession right away. We depend heavily on Mexico, uh, especially uh, the state of Sonora. They're our biggest trading partner. Uh, we import food. We import you know, uh, different types of equipment. We import just shoppers. Rich Mexicans come and shop on the American side and vice versa. We go on this. It would just destroy the American uh, economy first in Arizona, eventually the rest of the country. You know, Auto parts are made in Mexico and shipped up to Michigan. Uh, if you don't have those auto parts, they're not going to just be able to get them from anywhere right away. They would actually probably end up shutting down. And when there's a supply gap in terms of cars, then people are going to go buy foreign cars. So uh, Trump's idea is just, I mean, just plain stupid. Uh, only someone that was born in New York and does not understand border politics <laughs> would think that this is a good idea. Uh, and in terms of, I mean, there are people who go back and forth 
either for school or for jobs, right? I mean, and yeah, I mean, I mean for Arizona your state and yeah. California too. But California, Texas, uh, New Mexico. There's people that go back and forth for vacation, for food, for medical care. Uh, we're talking legal migration and and business yeah. and just business. Uh, you know, you have, for example, part. You know, uh, uh, some of our aerospace uh, industry is based in uh, Mexico. Uh, so we'd have parts that would not be fulfilled, you know, for some of our biggest, uh, uh, you know, producers of aerospace goods. So it, it just makes no sense. And again, it just shows how small-minded and I think ignorant uh, the Trump administration and Trump in, in, in Trump himself uh, are when it comes to the thinking where the, they're thinking of the border. Uh, and it, reportedly today, uh, his economic top economic advisors are telling him this, but he doesn't seem to be listening. Um, Look, this is a man that actually somehow was able to bankrupt a casino. Uh, I doubt that uh, he's going to listen to anybody, and he could quickly bankrupt a, a, a good economy right now. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you could bankrupt a casino, uh, that says something about your about your business skills, I yes. guess, right? Uh, in terms of the flow of illegal immigration, uh, this is something that I know coming from California, mm-hmm. the border states have been dealing with um, a long time. Um and is Donald Trump's wall the answer? Well, clearly not, because you see what's happening right now are people that are presenting themselves uh, for refugee status. So even if you put up this useless wall, people are just going to go to the border points of, of entry and just introduce themselves, you know, and ask for refugee status. So that's clearly not going to take any, uh, the wall's not going to do anything to stop the, the human flow of refugees. Uh, there's so many better ways to do this that require, you know, you know, tact, nuance, and leadership, which is something that this administration does not have. Uh, but it would actually end up stopping uh, or slowing down this this refugee flow because there's two types of uh, immigrants mm-hmm. that are crossing the border mm-hmm. right now. Uh, obviously, there's three. I should say there's your legal immigrants, workday worker, work, uh, workday workers, people that are just coming in and going out. Uh, there's people that are are entering without permission uh, between ports of entry. Uh, and then you have people that are representing represent themselves as refugees, uh, and those are largely from Central and South America, Central America, uh, and that would not stop a wall would not stop any of that. Uh, what a wall does is fulfills his campaign promise. That's all he cares about. It, this has nothing to do with you know stopping uh, quote unquote legal immigration or stopping refugees. It's just it's just him having an ego trip trying to uh, make sure he fulfills a campaign promise. Is actually not going to do anything. Right. Uh, what are the people of Arizona? What are your constituents or what are you hearing from your constituents about I mean we're used to this shtick I mean we've been talking about the wall I Republic- you said shtick I thought you might say something else anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's a family show still it's Bill a it's show. a family know, show still yeah I'm the one who usually it, goes it, over the line yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you don't have to worry about the guests usually <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a marine but I gotta tame myself too um, look you know I, I got elected to the Arizona State Legislature in 2010 we've been hearing this BS forever about the border, about the border wall. We actually had some ridiculous state senator put together a you know nonprofit to you know take donations to build a border wall. Does that actually oh, sound familiar? Yes. This is 2010. Of course, yeah. that money ended up going nowhere. Uh, we've everything you're seeing right now at the national level we saw in Arizona. Uh, so this is why it doesn't. It's just not as believable. Democrats and Republicans, and Independents didn't believe all these scare tactics they used last election cycle because we've seen it all. Right. And we understand the border is a more human dimension uh, than some idea of a wall. We understand that walls don't work. Uh, they can work in certain areas. But this idea that a wall is going to be our end all be all save all of uh, when it comes to our, our very complex border immigration is ridiculous. It requires mm-hmm. a multifaceted approach uh, that 
this president just is not capable of doing. At one time, a, a multifaceted approach that even I remember when George W. Bush had his comprehensive mem- that we talked about comprehensive immigration right. reform, right? Groups. It's a comprehensive problem. You know, there's many ways to do this, but one, one, right. one shot's not going to do it. Right. Um, I also would lo- love to get your take on one thing. that So this threat to shut down the border on the part of Donald Trump, um, uh, and despite the ad- contradictory advice he's getting from his economic advisors, uh, follows up on something he did over the weekend, which was cut off aid to uh, <laughs> Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Right. Um, smart move. No, not at all. Actually, you're only going to increase more uh, uh, immigration flows here, refugee flows. The, the smart thing to do is actually do two things. Number one, help stabilize those Central American regions. We had a program going uh, under Obama that did that by bringing more security to those countries and by helping actually them expand economically. Improving conditions. And, improving the conditions. Now, that takes a little while longer, but in, in the long run, it probably would have gotten us less of these immigration flows. Number two, if you actually wanted to deal with this refugee uh, uh, issue faster, you could. Instead, what we're seeing is the Border Patrol is purposely making it more difficult for people to apply for refugee status. Uh, they're not allowing them to cross the border and actually start filing their paperwork. Uh, and if they did that, you wouldn't have these huge masses of bodies uh, behind chain link fences that look like they're trying to evade the United States. But the yeah. problem with that, the problem with that is if you don't have that, then the president can't claim this huge uh, problem. Uh, you know, 80, almost you know, under Obama, we had a program where almost 99 percent of refugees actually showed up for their court dates. Right. Uh, even without that program, last statistic I, show, I saw that 89 percent of refugees will show up for the refugee claims. Hmm. So the president should do some research or have someone actually knows what they're doing over there and actually expedite the refugee process so we can actually uh, you know, discern who is supposed who is, has a legitimate claim to be here uh, under refugees and who doesn't. Uh, and that, I think, would actually stop this kind of, uh, you know, um, scene where the, where you're seeing all these masses of humans just kind of piled up. That is, n- you know, we have normal migration flows that happen this time of year. If mm-hmm. you actually, you know, if the president was actually competent, uh, he, he would actually be able to deal with this in a manner that most Democrats and Republican presidents have in the past. Right. Uh, let's get away from immigration for just a moment here. Are we ever going to see the full Mueller report? I think we are going to see the full Mueller report. I think we may have to fight for it. We have a right uh, to know what the Mueller report is. If the president claims that it exonerates him and condemns Democrats somehow, <laughs> then let's bring it. Uh, I'm willing to stand uh, you know, my trial by fire, uh, see what I have said in the past in regards to the, the Mueller report. Uh, I find it highly suspicious that the person who uh, basically uh, denied and excused all the illegal and unconstitutional acts of the Iran-Contra affair somehow uh, we're going to trust with this summary of a 485-page report. Uh, It's ridiculous. Like, let's release it. Uh, We have a right. The American people have a right to know what was in there. Uh, You know, I don't know what what the holdback is at this point. Right. Seems, you know, we paid for it, right? Congress paid for it. Taxpayer dollars that... It's our report. Absolutely. Deliver the report. Now, and you mentioned uh, Bill Barr, a cert, uh, also the author of the 19-page memo before he was nominated for attorney general, which says there's no obstruction of justice and you can't president. indict yeah. the president. And right. it looks to me like that's why he got the job. Well, certainly. And during I mean, the, he had one thing to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> which was to clear Donald Absolutely. Trump of any charge of obstruction. And, and he was asked during his confirmation, would he recuse himself from the process? And he said no. And he still got the nomination. I mean, right. so wh- why is anybody surprised by this? This is, you know, you're asking, uh, you know, basically the bank robber to be, uh, you know, cleared by his accomplice. So that just doesn't make any sense. Let the, let the public decide. 
And at the end of the day, this is a, a political question under the Constitution of the United States. The 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 guilt or innocence or what, what happens to the president uh, isn't really ever going to be decided by bar, certainly. And the Constitution says that it actually gets decided by Congress. And if his acts are... Uh, you know, in in line with high crimes or misdemeanors or any level of obstruction of justice, we have a right to determine what happens then. Right. Um, and uh, yesterday was the deadline that uh, Chairman uh, Jerry Nadler had given uh, the Attorney General for producing the report. No surprise, uh, he did not uh, deliver the report. Uh, so I think today the the committee would vote to authorize a, su- a subpoena if necessary. Yes. Which you would support? Absolutely. Look, there's nothing that we can't see uh, as members of Congress that the, the that he cannot give us, that Barr cannot give us right now, or it w- that could be filed in the Miller Report. I see classified information all the time. Um, so if there's anything that needs to be redacted, obviously before it gets released to the public, uh, we would understand that. But there is p- confidential settings where we can go in, uh, you know, in, in the state, in the House uh, uh, right now, mm-hmm. where we can read this report without it being leaked out or, you know, uh, in any sense, I think, compromising national security. So we've done it before. I've done it for classified information. This is no different. Right. Uh, moving on to the issue of health care, it's kind of hard to follow um, where the White House is from day to day on this because last week they joined a lawsuit saying, let's throw the entire Affordable Care Act out the window. Uh, then the president says, no, we're going to be the party of health care and we're going to produce a great new plan and it's going to come out like right away. And then Mitch McConnell says, what plan? We're not working on any plan. Um, so yesterday, yet again, Peter, if we have the president talking now saying, basically, we've got a beautiful plan, but we're not going to release it until we're ready to. Uh, anyhow, here's the president. We don't have the House. So even though the health care is good, really good, it's much better than when the plan comes out, which we'll be showing you at the appropriate time. It's much better than Obamacare. Who's he kidding? They don't have a plan, do they? No, they didn't have a plan before. Um, this is very Nixonian of them. Like, I have a plan for Vietnam. I'm not telling you until after we, uh, I win the election. I mean, like, come on. Uh, who's he joking? He, he, has, he certainly has not come up with a plan. He doesn't understand health insurance. I think, you know, he's never actually had to deal with health insurance. Other people dealt with him, dealt with it for him. So that's your first, you know, fault right, right there. He doesn't understand it. Um, look, the most conservative version that gets you close to universal health care uh, universal health care is, quote unquote, Obamacare or the ACA. Uh, you know, this program that that was started by President Obama was actually a Cato Institute uh, idea. Mm-hmm. I actually learned uh, about this even years ago when I was studying at Harvard under uh, Marty Feldstein, a, uh, you know, a, a, a economist Con- under uh, Ronald Reagan. Conservative economist. Yes. Yeah. And so he actually outlined this program in my uh, econ class. So, you know, there is no <laughs> way that they're going to be, the Republicans can do anything uh, that is remotely useful, I would say, to, in terms of bringing down the cost of health care and, and giving more coverage uh, than what exists right now. So essentially, the only thing they can do is really destroy the whole thing and kind of give what would say junk insurance plans to people to make them feel like they have you know, proper uh, health insurance, but in the end would not make any difference. And the only way that happens, by the way, we have junk insurance plans, is you have to, get away, you have to give, uh, give away pre-existing condition protections, because if not, that increases premiums on the, on the whole end. So right. this is why, you know, the, they have no plans. They will have no plans. Um, you know, the the plan for uh, Donald Trump and Republicans is don't get sick. If you do get sick, go bankrupt, and eventually you're going to die anyway. So, right. I mean, that's basically what, what their plan is going to be. Right. 
Um, do you see this as a, a an issue in 2020, the way it was well, healthcare, the way it was in 2018? I absolutely. Um, if you, I mean, they expose their nerve, and we should make sure we t- uh, we keep touching it as often as possible this election. Right. Uh, certainly resulted in 40 new seats in the 40 pickups in the House of Representatives. Absolutely. And again, seems to me with the Republicans now, they're stu- it, particularly. And I know some of them, Republicans in Congress, are hoping that the lawsuit in Texas goes down, right? right? Does not succeed because they're going to be stuck with having come out to totally get rid of Obamacare, replace it with nothing right. but a promise that if you reelect us, Correct. we'll come up with a new plan. Right. And I suspect that they're, they're actually um, uh, judge shopping right now. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and you mean trying to get to another judge? Correct. Yeah, yeah because yeah. if they if they hit like the wrong circuit court judge, uh, you know, I think they probably have a fifty fifty chance of actually getting what they don't want, which is, you know, the ACA getting struck down and then this getting into a very weird limbo situation. Right, uh, Congressman, you and uh, head of your subcommittee have been dealing with an issue that we don't hear much about, which is the plight, um, particularly in this con- inside this country. Uh, facing indigenous women. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the reason I had a hearing on that, tell us about it. I mean, unfortunately, it's the first hearing that's ever occurred on this. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's sad. I mean, it's absolutely sad that we've allowed this to happen. Um, we have over 3,000 missing indigenous women, murdered and missing indigenous women all across this country, uh, American women, uh, and we basically have ignored it. It's And it is Congress's job to actually have oversight over Indian country, and we've done nothing. Uh, so, you know, as soon as I became this, chairman, these, these, these women, uh, is this happening on Indian land on reservations? Both. Or just Yeah, both. both on Indian land and off Indian land. Um, it's a, it's a it's a combination of a lot of factors. Uh, but the most important factor is that you have an uncaring government and that's us. Uh, and so we need to start pushing uh, the issue in the envelope. I just introduced legislation that uh, actually is going to is just brought got brought into amendment that we're going to actually be able to start tracking, even tracking. Um, you know, where this is happening, how this is happening, why this is happening. We have no data uh, uh, that could really help us determine, what, you know, what we can do to help the situation. And so I'm not done yet. Uh, we're going to continue pushing on this. This We kind of need a whole of government approach to this, to be honest. It's not just, you know, me on the Indian, uh, the, the subcommittee of indigenous people, uh, but also we need the Department of Justice. Uh, we need lo- local local uh, uh, electeds in, in states, uh, in counties, and we need our tribal police uh, and tribal justice courts to also be involved. But none of that has occurred, um, and we just we need to turn this around. We cannot, if this was, you know, if this is 3,000, um, you know, Anglo women that disappeared over the span of, you know, five to 10 years, I think we would have, um, you know, the press and everybody going insane. Uh, but instead, we have this epidemic of, of women uh, of color, and we just don't have the same kind of rise uh, in terms of urgency. But we should. There are yeah. American women. There are, there are, there are uh, sisters. Why not? They just get lost in the process somehow it's a, or? Well, because it's it's a combination of many things. You know, um, there there some of them are in very far off uh, areas. Uh, some of them um, are you know very difficult for them to be to be found just because they do they move around a lot. You know, and and also because for some reason, and I think partly is a certain level of racism, they uh, some of these women aren't allowed to uh, to be imperfect. So if they have, uh, for example, a drug habit, uh, for some reason, oh, you know, the local yeah. police will say, well, she's you know, probably on a bender. We're not going to go looking for her. And then they find, unfortunately, that woman uh, years later. But that's not all the case. There are there are women uh, that, uh, you know, and young girls that are being kidnapped uh, all the time. Uh, and 
Um, I also fear, my personal fear is, you know, if you are a predator, you know, you go to where the oh, weaknesses yeah, are. Yeah. And I, and I guarantee you there are some sexual predators out there that are clearly stalking our Native American women. You know, um, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I'm, I'm totally blanking. But, Peter, we had a guest in studio, uh, Congressman, um, a couple of years ago who wrote a very powerful book about murder on an Indian reservation. It was never David Grant. David Grant. Yeah. Okay. And the book, something to do with flowers. Flowers of the Killing Moon. Flowers oh, of the Killing Moon. Yeah. Oh, my okay. God. Oh my Based God. on a true story. But, oh. Total true story about a family that was kind of wiped out and law enforcement authorities yeah. just look the other way. Look the other way. Look the yeah, right now, you can't. it's very difficult to even get Amber Good Alerts. catch there, Peter. It's Good very catch. difficult to even get Amber Alerts uh, for Native American uh, uh, children, if you think about that. You know, in some states you do, some states you don't, but- uh, to get an Amber Alert out because of the different like uh, jurisdictions, uh, you don't necessarily get that out. Even though, you know, if if that same Native American child was off reservation, an Amber Alert would actually be uh, issued. Um, as a Marine, and I don't say former Marine because yeah, once a Marine, always a Marine, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, May not look it, but I was at one point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the president brags about you know he's the best friend the military ever had. The military is in the strongest uh, position. We've ever been in, um, and uh, nobody takes care of the veterans the way I do. Uh, and here he is. This sort of gets back to the wall. But here he is saying, "I want to build this wall, damn it! And if you won't give me the money, I'm going to take money from these military bases yep. where they're going to build housing for for families or schools for kids yep. of military." And uh, uh, yeah. It's a certain internal contradiction here. How do you see it? Well, there's a lot of internal contradictions. I mean, first of all, it, whether this is, you know, he's pro-military or anti-military, the most important thing, it's anti-constitution, constitutional for him to actually go around the legislative process and take money from the Armed Services Committee that we've allocated and or authorized, and I'm on the Armed Services Committee. We have said that these right. are the projects that need to be filled yeah. in, the ter- in, in terms of national de- the national defense strategy that we need for this country, and he's going around saying, no, you're wrong. I'm taking that money now. So now what's going to happen, for the next, for at least for the next foreseeable future, we're going to input language into uh, the NDAA, the, the Defense Authorization Act, says you can't do that anymore because now we can't trust you, right? We always let, left a little bit of latitude for our presidents to be able to use that fund for real emergencies. For real emergencies, right. right. But, you know, you're trying to, com, trying to you know, fulfill your dumb campaign promise does not make a national emergency. So we're going to have to change that. Uh, and that's actually the biggest issue. In terms of being pro-military, Look, if you want to say you're pro-military, then actually follow up with that. Don't discriminate against our transgendered uh, service members, right? Actually uh, go and, and listen to Congress about where we should be spending uh, our money. Uh, continue to actually work with us to end these endless wars. And I do give him credit for at least talking about it, uh, but he hasn't actually uh, moved in that direction. Uh, and then recognize that you know this country's strength uh, in the world is not just from our military strength. It's actually... A whole nation, whether it's you know a country that has you know uh, opportunity, equal opportunity for everyone who comes here, treat everybody uh, equally, uh, no matter what their race uh, and gender is, uh, or religion, which he seems to also have a problem with too. There's so many other ways that we can make this country just as strong as our military, and his focus on just the brawn instead of the brain, uh, I think, is extremely uh, dangerous and and somewhat more in line with his more authoritarian way than anything else. But again, these projects. Um are are projects that have been specifically requested by the Pentagon, right? Yep. You've approved as from the yeah. Armed Services Committee that this much money for that project. Right. And in effect, 
that project alone, right? It's Correct. not a grab bag, right? Correct. Um, or a little kitty <laughs> that well, he can dip yeah. into for anything right. that he wants. Right. Well, Bill, I think you have to understand, like, the president actually looks at government as his toy, much like he looked at the Trump corporation as his toy. This is the same man that, you know, claims that he needs to cut funds here and there, but then will spend millions of dollars flying down to Mar-a-Lago uh, every weekend, right? So he, he doesn't get that, like, you can't be talking about deficit, <laughs> but then actually being costing us close to $100 million in trips to Mar-a-Lago, right? He doesn't get that the military is there to uphold the Constitution of the United States, Right. It's not there to be the president play toy and protective security of this president. And he's trying to basically align that uh, in his way. Right. He just doesn't get it. this man thinks about himself first, not about country first. And that's why you see these types of actions. Uh, government is his toy and he's got his toy plane. Yeah. <laughs> you know. This is why he can't stand the DOJ doesn't go after political enemies. I mean, this is he he just doesn't get it. He doesn't get it and he doesn't want to get it. Right. Uh, why, why aren't you? Why aren't you launching an investigation of Hillary's emails, for example? Hey, Guess yeah. what? We've already done that. Exactly. Huh? Exactly. Right. That's so good to see you. Thanks good so to see much you, for Thanks coming for having in. me. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't been out to Arizona in your great state in a while. I have to uh, have to improve that. We've got but... a couple more nice months before it gets hot. So. <laughs> yeah, and then stay away, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good to see you, Congressman. Congressman Ruben Gallego. You, Keep people can follow you on Twitter yep. at Rep Ruben Gallego. Yep. Right. We got it. Uh, that does it for us on a Wednesday, folks. The rest of the day is all yours. So keep uh, keep up with what's going on and then come back again tomorrow. We'll talk about it and we'll be looking for you right here tomorrow morning, Thursday, April 4. This is The Bill Press Show. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.